0: Hello, my name is Justin LeCleur, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Jack
1: Nicholson. We're taking a dance with the devil in the pale moonlight tonight.
0: And we're also going to be focusing on Christian Slater, uh, Stephen Dorr, <laughs> all the Jack Nicholson impersonators. I mean, no, we're not. We're just going to be talking about Jack himself.
1: You had a big old Jack Nicholson bonanza this week. I, I take it that Jack Nicholson was never very important to you.
0: I think that he was, was because he? Jack yeah. was one of those movie stars. right yeah you know who jack nicholson is
1: he's one of those people who even when you're a kid and you're not allowed to see his movies he like he's front row at the oscars there are pictures of him everywhere he's like tom cruise is one of those guys who's just symbolic of a movie star and jack
0: like the best universal monsters you can just draw a caricature of him a shadow if you will and you'll know exactly who he is big old
1: sunglasses the big old arching eyebrows Mm -hmm. big old friggin' grin on his face. And
0: most importantly, he was the Joker. And every kid knew who played the Joker, Jack Nicholson.
1: Personal story, when I was maybe five, six years old, my grandpa was watching A Few Good Men and he said to me, oh, come in and watch this. Uh, it's got the Joker in it, Jack Nicholson. And I said, oh, boy. And then it opens with a scene of a soldier being brutally killed in his bunk. And uh, I had nightmares about it for months after. And I did not get to any scene with Jack Nicholson. In
0: Was it. the Joker involved in these nightmares? Was he the one doing yeah. the murdering? He he,
1: he he skipped in and he started defacing <laughs> all the
0: paintings. And
1: <laughs> and you're like, this is the true horror. And, he, and they killed him to Prince music. <laughs>
0: But other than that, Jack Nicholson is the guy that came up in the new Hollywood. He starred in Easy Rider. He starred in Five Easy Pieces. These are the films that kind of define what Hollywood became after the studio era.
1: I mean, Jack Nicholson, I think, is also interesting to us in a way because he spent you know, almost a decade under the tutelage of Roger Corman, mm-hmm. somebody who was a touchstone for us. He
0: didn't really make any major films as Corman. And because the Bike. Little pictures,
1: Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, he is a
0: star in that one. But yes, <laughs> his role is one of the most
1: famous things from that picture.
0: <laughs> the Terror, of course, everyone's yeah. favorite Roger Corman film. You know,
1: as a star, Jack Nicholson has a very good body of work, I think. <laughs> I thought you were going to say good body. <laughs> uh, no, he does not have a good body.
0: <laughs> That's Age well, comes from a
1: force all will. Well documented that for 35 years and or more, he has not had a good body. Um, but also, you know, even though he has movies that are not very good and a couple of craven mercenary choices. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We'll, yeah, <laughs> or, or an, a movie with Adam Sandler that we'll talk about a little bit later. Yep. He, like Warren Beatty, is one of the people from his generation who every movie that they made still seemed a little bit like an event, mm-hmm. which is not the case with, say, Robert De Niro or Al Pacino. Who Did you feel of... that even when you were a teenager and Jack Nicholson films were coming out? Yeah, I think so. Like, there, I mean, aside from certain movies, there always seemed to be a bit of a quality control. And okay, Well, ang- there
0: was not that many as well. Yeah,
1: and anger management. I mean, Adam Sandler was <laughs> the biggest comedy star of his day finally
0: two titans who defined what hollywood (laughs) is coming together
1: and like he he was you know like the male meryl streep of every movie he did he got an oscar (laughs) nomination for oh adam (laughs) sandler uh No, uh, <laughs> Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, And before we get into the movies, let's just talk a little bit about him as a screen presence. Mm-hmm. Well, he's been
0: accused of doing the same thing in every role. Mm. Like, not only the look of Jack Nicholson, there's also, like, the acting style of Jack Nicholson, which is why I mentioned at the beginning, like, Christian Slater, Stephen Dorff. Mm-hmm. There's a mannerism you can fall into that has been defined as
1: Nicolese, Nicholsonese. He has been compared to somebody like Humphrey Bogart. Mm-hmm. If it's true that there's a dichotomy between great stars and great actors, and I don't think there is, uh, but let's just say this true, he is somebody who is both. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't disappear into a role, really. You're always aware that it's him, and yet there are... You know, he he is a great actor. He can do About Schmidt. He can do Batman. He can do Five Easy Pieces. The thing about Jack
0: Nicholson is he never, like, steps away from his roles. And you go, well, I don't buy this character because I know that this is Jack Nicholson. And I think that's the difference between someone who's just a star and someone who can actually embody someone on screen.
1: And just down to his, his face... Uh, You know, when we talk about movie stars, oftentimes we get back to the idea of their face. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, he's... And by that, you mean his eyebrows, right? His eyebrows. (laughs)
1: Like, I was struck this week about the fact that even in his heyday, he wasn't pretty. Exactly. Mm. I mean, I guess he was handsome. I mean, he's been
0: fighting baldness for 60 years.
1: (laughs) Yeah, his features are... Exaggerated, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, there's something very sharp about his face. You know, he—it's not—he's not a pretty boy, and there's something about that face. You know, the, those eyebrows. That okay, I'm—I'm I'm getting all muddled up, but he's not pretty, but he is aggressively sexual and even as he got older and he sort of let himself go a bit i mean you know a movie like the two jakes which we both watched (laughs) this week he is definitely not particularly good looking at it and yet there is that kind of aggressive sexuality to i think
0: it boils down to charisma and presence though and the way that he just kind of pops right off screen
1: and it's amazing all the sorts of things he can do i mean he has an enormous like strength and gravitas like in that scene in A Few Good Men, you can't handle the truth. Like, he can be a very intimidating screen presence. You know, he can be do the Lothario thing.
0: And he can uh, also be, like, the counterculture rebel mm-hmm. who's, like, going against the system. His charisma works in all of those
1: modes. He can be very goofy, mm-hmm. uh, and he can also be very vulnerable. And, you know, the fact that he has this reputation as this Lothario, this guy who has seduced so many women, uh, which I guess is problematic.
0: As he, Jack Nicholson says in a recent interview, you I'm going to die alone. <laughs> yes.
1: But but that is Impacted somewhat by the fact that he is capable of such vulnerability.
0: Well, I think that is revisited again and again in all of his movie roles, whether it be something like Five Easy Pieces, which we both watched and is often considered like the ultimate Jack Nicholson film.
1: This is the movie I think it's fair to say that he really became a star. I know there's Easy Rider before that, but he's a supporting character in Easy Rider.
0: And in Five Easy Pieces, he defines what that movie is. It's a film that, you know, The director, Bob Raffleson, brings a lot to it that he somehow makes it kind of breezy, heavy, pretentious, but without getting in your face about it. And I think a lot of that has to do with Jack Nicholson's performance in the main role, because he is essentially playing a very damaged individual who takes that damage and turns it into jackassness while still being charismatic and you still wanting to follow what's going to happen to yeah, him. And
1: yeah, and you sympathize with him in mm-hmm. a way, even though he's such, a, such an awful person.
0: So for people who haven't seen the movie, it's about Jack Nicholson is an oil worker who um, is in a relationship with Karen Black. And we find out that he's actually from a very rich family who live on an island. He's a music prodigy. And he's been essentially trying to run away from that history his entire life and try to avoid responsibility at all
1: costs and he's brought back to his family home that he's been avoiding all these years because his father is on his deathbed. and you know out of a sense of guilt he brings along this girlfriend karen black who he's kind of ashamed of because she's very low class quote unquote and he's a bit of a cad throughout the whole thing you know he works on the oil rig and and uh he uh fucks around a lot
0: what struck me about this viewing is that The story in my mind from the last time I saw it was defined by the interactions he had with his family which only take up like 40 minutes of this two-hour picture Mm. because the journey is just as important as him finally coming to confront these people and the confrontation when it does finally happen and he like talks to his father who has been ill and can't really communicate with him it doesn't feel cathartic and that's what the point of the movie like it's too Mm. late for that
1: he's uncomfortable wherever he is he was (laughs) uncomfortable as a piano prodigy uh, he's not happy working the oil rig he's not happy with his girlfriend he's not happy at the friggin diner <laughs> so
0: like the famous scene in five easy pieces is, is where jack nicholson wants to order i don't remember what it is i think it's just toast and eggs. With, yeah,
1: with the thing and hold the lettuce and hold this yeah, yeah he just famous, wants something. famous he, he
0: just wants something simple and the waitress won't give it to him so he says all right give me the sandwich let's distract everything so i only get the toast and i always see it like quoted in movie books out of context and what it looks like is a man kind of fighting this rigid system when in reality all it is is Jack Nicholson taking it out on a poor waitress for no particular reason yeah. and the scene ends with him knocking everything off of the table and I think it says a lot of Jack Nicholson the actor that people see that as like a heroic scene almost like Rocky running up the steps <laughs> when in the context of the movie it makes complete sense but because how strong a presence he is it gets distorted in people's memories.
1: By the way a scene that was revisited to great effect in the Jerry Lewis film Cracking Up when he <laughs> tries to order dinner and the waitress keeps saying do you want do you want uh, milk do you want cream do you want sugar do you want that and it keeps going that goes on into the, on. the
0: anti-comedy realm though where <laughs> (laughs) It just goes on and on and on. It's interesting that after Five Easy Pieces, he followed it up with Carnal Knowledge, the Mike Nichols film, Mm -hmm. which is uh, Jack being Jack, a guy that loves to uh, sleep with a lot of ladies with his best pal, Art Garfunkel.
1: Art Garfunkel, who is the the beta of the Mm -hmm. duo, and it follows 25 years in their life. They begin at college where they are both virginal, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. Art Garfunkel's is certainly virginal. Mm-hmm. And Art Garfunkel is striking up a relationship with a uh, good looking co ed played by Candace Bergen, who is also seeing Jack.
0: When Jack learns that the Garfunkler is almost about to sleep with his current partner jack jumps on it and he's like no i need to sleep with her first which creates this like cheating relationship where he pretends with his friends that he's dating someone else our garfunkel doesn't know that jack is sleeping with his partner and essentially it doesn't actually reach a massive confrontation like you would expect. Mm. Things get resolved in a way that define the rest of Jackie's career in in the movie. (laughs) You know, it's difficult to separate Jack the man from Jack the character because, like, even in Carnal Knowledge, what we would think of as Jack Nicholson almost seems to be defined in the story that's being told.
1: The the cad. The The, cad, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And, like, what Carnal Knowledge is is just, like, you follow these two characters as they go on through their lives in these um, segmented episodes, as especially Jack Nicholson, his life gets more and more miserable as he's incapable of not taking women and then destroying them.
1: He's unable to form a meaningful connection with them. And there's that scene where they're both in Central Park. This is when time has shifted 10 years into the future and they're both. Uh, successful guys in their career and jack is talking about yeah i i had sex with 12 women this year it's lower than my normal amount you know and and <laughs> like he says it with that jack brio but he comes across as kind of a broken or, or a damaged man right? well watching all these
0: films in a row it really painted this portrait of jack nicholson as like The alpha male Mm -hmm. as the fragile kind of like leaf blowing in the wind. Where on the surface, all these movies are like, ah, yeah, look how manly I am. Mm -hmm. But the conclusion they come to is, oh no, well this character is broken and he can never find any kind of love.
1: It's an interesting, I think, interaction with his off-screen persona, isn't it? I mean, it's
0: really weird that like they reflect each other so much. Yeah,
1: because the media image of Jack Nicholson as this sunglasses-wearing guy who had sex with all these women. I think you were supposed to find him cool he wanted you to find him cool
0: but then you have films like chinatown where he's the coolest detective who continually makes the wrong decisions all the way through yeah (laughs) and like we're going to skip a lot of movies here that people are like, how can you not talk about the last detail or Antonioni's The a passenger? Or one flew over the cuckoo's nest or even the shining. Why are we going to say that one for our Stanley Kubrick
1: episode? Well, the shining, uh, very, He's crazy? very <laughs> extreme performance. Yes. That's, I think a turning point in his career. Don't you, <laughs> don't you think,
0: uh, you mean into like a slight caricature?
1: Well, I you see. There's a lot in Jack Nicholson's late career that I like, mm-hmm. but there's a, well, I don't know if he's ever been a naturalistic actor, mm-hmm. um, but hes he was certainly a more grounded actor in, in those early 70s movies. Like, those early 70s movies it's easy to forget how different they were from what audiences were accustomed to seeing at the time.
0: Yeah, just like feels in the moment, feels immediate.
1: About real people with -hmm. with real problems and flawed characters and oftentimes dealing in an adult way about sex and relationships.
0: Stephen King's big complaint about Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining and he has a lot, most of them fairly unfounded, was that Jack Nicholson starts the movie crazy and he can only like go up to 11 from there. Like the first shot of him doing the interview him leaning back in the chair and smiling just insanity on that face i mean
1: there was a time when i would have maybe agreed with stephen king but actually i think the whole point is that he is crazy at the beginning and he's like he's just crazy he, the he's, entire way he's through. barely keeping it together mm-hmm.
0: yeah but, but, and, and that's jack Nicholson's career right it's yeah. just craziness all the way through but nah, also not really. like there,
1: there comes to a point when you become such a big star that it, it, it does get harder to disappear into a role uh,
0: especially when you start like defining the roles where it's the Jack Nicholson film I mean like he had such a long career doing so much interesting stuff that you can understand that he'd be like eh you know I'll take it easy and star in a bunch of James L. Brooks films where I essentially play Jack Nicholson or in the witches of Eastwick where he plays the devil himself
1: Mm, or uh, Batman of course the
0: purest of Jack Nicholson which is another
1: turning point in his career because it hardly needs to be said again but his salary was six million dollars for the movie but he got that incredible perspective percentage deal where he would get a percentage of all the merchandise the gross and also a percentage of the sequels and any dare so like i did not
0: know he made that deal i'm
1: pretty sure that i believe that is true somebody verify that i believe he gets a percentage of the animated series too well like Like, everything that came out of that
0: like jack nicholson being in batman could be viewed as some selling out right like at this point he had done big pictures like prissy's honor or even terms of endearment or Warren Beatty's reds but there's still like respectability in the, uh, cultural eye, but Batman, that's just like selling out. You're just, just for toys and kids. So it's amazing that Jack Nicholson is like, well, if I'm going to sell out, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to make all the money that I can.
1: I think the movie speaks for itself though. I mean, he certainly doesn't phone it in. <laughs> no, in <he> Batman. Doesn't. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think his pe- You thought the shot. in was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I think his performance totally, um, you know, makes that movie light up and oh, you know, I love it. it's also, it's also a real movie. I mean, mm-hmm. it had Tim Burton's particular vision but behind it.
0: You know, speaking of Batman, he probably only did it because it led to his real passion project, the Long Gap sequel to Chinatown, The Two Jakes, which Jack Nicholson himself directed.
1: One of only three movies he directed, along Mm. with Drive, he said, and Going South, I believe. Uh, And I think he only directed The Two Jakes because he couldn't find another director to do it. I mean, Roman Polanski was off in uh, wherever he is.
0: Yeah, Uh, exiled. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Not exiled. I mean, running away from the law. Let's be specific there. Like it was also a film that went through like a million permutations. Like Robert Evans was supposed to play a major role at one point. And
1: Robert Evans is still the producer of it. I know <laughs> that it was a troubled production. Jack Nicholson and Robert Town, the celebrated writer, were no longer speaking towards the end of oh, it. Oh, I did
0: not know that. Well,
1: all the narration in the film, that hard-boiled stuff, was not written by Robert Town. It's
0: yeah, written by I like by that someone narration else. in the movie. I like it too. It's <laughs> it's
1: frankly one of the things I like most about it.
0: So we're gonna uh, take a reappraisal of the two Jakes, a forgotten film film and say that it is still bad (laughs) i was really hoping to like it but when you look at the two hours and 15 minute running time
1: you know i started watching it late one night i saw two hours and 15 minutes and i said all right let's do it (laughs) really yeah i was like foolhardy just throwing it to the wind You're like bill
0: most is doing the cinematography at least it'll look good like his later day
1: projects the mindy project you know a long time just hanging out with jack mm-hmm. in a giving a post. very
0: comatose performance <laughs> i assume that he because he gave his all on batman so when the two jakes rolled around he's like
1: man i'm tired and before we get to the plot of the two jakes i just want to point out that tracy walter who played bob the goon in batman <laughs> is also in the two jakes uh, so it's a a Batman sequel of sorts. Uh, in addition to being a Chinatown sequel, but the plot is it's after World War Two. Detective Jake Giddies is still working. You know, he specializes in adultery cases, and he's been hired by Harvey Keitel to investigate an affair that his wife is having with his business partner. And when the affair is uncovered, he shoots the business partner in a, a blind rage. But is it a blind rage? Is it that he really wants all the rights to the, the oil business? So
0: I'm going to reiterate what I said earlier in the episode, which is that Chinatown is all about a detective being wrong. And the two Jakes is about the same detective actually proven he's pretty cool. <laughs> And, and he can figure stuff out.
1: And he revisits the case of the first film mm-hmm. uh, with the Faye Dunaway's daughter,
0: just to remind us. Hey, you're not know, watching Chinatown right now. <laughs> and
1: he makes things all okay. <laughs>
0: yeah, he does. Everything is fine and dandy.
1: And it's uh, very slow. Ugh. And it goes from one scene to another as Jack has conversations with. You know, Richard Farnsworth and uh, various other people. Ah,
0: It's nice to see um, James uh, Hong show up again. Yeah, yep. (laughs) Um, But you um, isolated one scene that kind of defined where Jack Nicholson was in 1990. And that's the scene where he makes sweet, sweet love
1: to make tilly who you know goes after him in a uh, a nymphomaniac like <laughs> rage uh and jack is all worn out and he's tired and he gropes for a little bit uh and and as he, he's panting he says Ugh, get get down on your knees yeah <laughs> put, put your ass in the air <laughs>
0: uh, it's like uh, and, and, just... and wait
1: and wait for me and then he splashes some water <laughs> on his face uh, and this is where Jack's really shown his age. And I think this is what sex with Jack is really like in real
0: life. <laughs> you see, he's like,
1: He pants yeah. and he releases.
0: <laughs> Gives instructions, tells you to wait a little bit. Yeah. I mean, Jack Nicholson has looked the same age for... 30 years at this point. That's right. And I think there's something great about that. Yeah. yeah. That one day he'll just turn to dust and disappear. <laughs> but until then, he'll be the Jack Nicholson we know and love.
1: Around the time of Terms of Endearment, uh, mm-hmm. he became old Jack.
0: I mean, that's a big part of where his career would go and be redefined was his work with James L. Brooks because you have Terms of Endearment. And then you also have As Good As It Gets, which right. was the Nicholson hit of the
1: 90s. Best actor yep. at, at the Oscars. Uh, not a particularly great movie, I think.
0: Uh, it's shaggy in that El Brooks way. And you
1: get to hang out with Jack doing his Jack shtick, and it's all about how he's an asshole who becomes a better man.
0: How do you consider the fact that Jack said that he was a method actor, but he made it look so easy that people didn't actually realize that?
1: I think there's probably something to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, acting is a hard thing, you know? Jack's got a lot in his toolbox. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> like, like he, as I said, he's got enormous presence, and he has enormous range, even within that Jack Nichols character
0: and we should point out that the two jakes again was directed by jack nicholson not much of a director Now. no <laughs> Probably realized that himself.
1: Yeah, he hired a good cinematographer. Hey, so we're in the bumpy 90s period of his career. You watched Hoffa this week. I watched an hour of it and was like, life's too short.
0: <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, I like Danny DeVito as a director. I like Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson is giving it his all in this movie. Danny DeVito is trying to be Hitchcock for the 90s. was doing all these, a lot of
1: Scorsese crane shots yeah, and stuff. Crazy
0: camera moves, but it's a film that... Even though it's written by David Mamet, it's not very exciting. It just kind of lays there no matter what DeVito does. And so, yeah, I would not recommend
1: it. I think Jack Nicholson is badly miscast as Hoffa. Uh, you know, Nicholson can play a lot of parts. He can play the character from About schmidt He can play the Joker. But the part has to, I think, in some way interact effectively with him as like a star presence. On
0: paper, it makes complete sense. This very charismatic union leader mm-hmm. who was able to rally these people while still being morally corrupt at his center. Well, maybe, which is the definition yeah. of a Jack character. Well,
1: maybe if he didn't do that accent, yeah. maybe if he didn't have that makeup on, he mm-hmm. would be a little more convincing. But in every single second of what I saw of Hoffa, it's like, oh, that's Jack Nicholson doing an accent. <laughs> yeah,
0: it is. But then you have like more um, morose Jack Nicholson, something like about Schmidt where a lot of the humor comes out of the fact that this is Jack Nicholson playing it at a lower register but still doing that Nicholson kind of like physical stuff mm-hmm. at certain points which just makes it even funnier.
1: And I think that movie and The Pledge both in the early 2000s show him, you know, trying again, mm-hmm. try, try, trying to trying to play a real character and do and, and challenge himself in interesting ways and you know acknowledging his age on what screen. you don't
0: think that mars attacks is an attempt to like stretch himself playing two roles a real peter sellers yeah
1: well i i revisited uh parts of mars attacks this week i you know, skipped to the Jack Nicholson, Jack scenes. And you'll remember that he plays a dual role in (laughs) Mars attacks. He plays the uh, president, but he also plays the hilarious Las Vegas, like gambler character. (laughs) No one can see the giant air quotes floating in the (laughs) air above will. And he plays that as if he's Beetlejuice (laughs) Um, and
0: smoking.
1: And, you know, I think Ah,
0: Jack Nicholson is the best.
1: And, you know, I, I love him as the Joker, but I think some of his lesser performances Like, for example, The Departed Mm -hmm. hot take. Um,
0: Uh, Don't you mean his amazing cartoony performance? They had to rotoscope him in because he was so big.
1: I think there are some times later in his career when there's just a little bit too much either confidence that, oh, Jack's going to bring the magic. Mm. Just, Just roll the camera and let Jack go wild. Or on the case of the departed as i understand it scorsese couldn't even really direct him Mm -mm. like like jack just was not taking direction at that point and he did the role because i want to go all out i want to do a supercharged villain performance so the departed has weird scenes like that bit in the porn theater where he he, i don't uh, even
0: remember i haven't seen the departed in ages he meets
1: matt damon in the porn theater and he's like pretending to jerk off and then he (laughs) he jumps up and he's got a dildo or there's that sex scene which i assume comes straight out of jack's life where he's got two women in bed and he's He's, he like picks up a big old mound of coke and he like blows it <laughs> like just absurd crazy rococo jack stuff which i don't know in my personal opinion maybe if i re-watch it i'll like it more my personal opinion a bit much
0: what about anger management which is mainstream peak crazy jack nicholson
1: a movie that he made 20 million dollars for wow really yep according to imdb how much uh, did Sandler get paid? I hope at least $25 million. He got 25 He did? Yeah. He also produced it. So huh, okay. Uh, I think he's very good in anger management.
0: Uh, now we know where that gift of him nodding as the camera <laughs> pushes into it. I could have sworn it was from The Departed, but yeah, it was not.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I thought so too. Um, so anger management, we both revisited it i'm sure you saw it in the 2000s i had
0: no memory of it except for the john c riley scene where adam (laughs) sandler fights john c riley
1: the plot if it needs summarizing because i'm sure all our listeners have seen anger management it's right there on netflix for you yep Uh, adam sandler is just a nice regular guy he's got a fiancee played by marissa tomei and uh, he's in a job and he wants that big promotion but you know his boss is taking him for granted He's got all this anger burning up inside him. And you know he gets railroaded through the judicial system into having an anger management coach played by Jack.
0: And he ends up having to live with him. And I kind of want to skip to the end because there's an (laughs) insane twist that at the beginning of the movie, I went, they're not going to do this. But it ends up that Adam Sandler was being gaslighted by his girlfriend, Marissa Tomei.
1: His girlfriend just happened to meet Jack Nicholson. They struck up a conversation. They're like, hey, what if we created this old boy level conspiracy? (laughs)
0: to make adam sandler realize that he does have anger issues and like if i learned that my partner had done that to me i would be like that isn't i can never trust you again (laughs)
1: well it's wildly complex because it it it, it requires like serious judicial misconduct
0: and also sandler is emotionally abused after go through this these court hearings over threatened Mm. with a year in
1: jail (laughs) now it would only take a few adjustments, I think, to make this a really good
0: movie. No Adam Sandler.
1: You know, I think Adam Sandler's okay.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah Okay. I, I guess... He's affable. You know. In relation to Jack Nicholson, even though that there's a plot point near the end where Jack Nicholson has to live with him, or he has to go for a year in jail. And Sandler seems to forget this because he's very confrontational.
1: Yeah. So, wait a minute. If he didn't go live with Jack Nicholson, would he have spent the year in jail? <laughs> and then like...
0: would he have come out, it, and come out of jail? Tome would have been like, what did you learn? <laughs>
1: oh by the way i set this all up Yep, it has a crazy cast louis guzman is there john Turturro, woody harrelson as a transgender <laughs> sex worker
0: yes this film has not aged well
1: <laughs> a lot of no homo jokes
0: but every time jack
1: nicholson is on screen Mwah. oh yeah he's he's really good <laughs> yeah he is like and this has that that thing that makes him a star in it which is that he has gravitas like you buy him as somebody with a lot of authority and, and just there's, there's a great weight to his screen presence, but also like he's genuinely dangerous. Mm -hmm. There's
0: there's something funny as well. And Funny. Yeah. Yeah.
1: He's very funny. And there's something about him that seems capable of doing anything.
0: There's a scene where Adam Sandler tells Jack Nicholson that his mother is um, in surgery and Jack Nicholson just like breaks down. He's like, "No," and it's so funny. But then when Sandler has to tell Nicholson that, Oh, it's just a joke, but, uh, yeah, your mother is actually in minor surgery. You actually feel that, like, Jack will, like, kill him or something like that, the way he looks at him. And he's like, ha good joke. I'm going to get you back. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but I think there could be a good movie here about, like, like a, a really pitch black comedy about uh, somebody and their abusive anger management <laughs> There is. Without the crazy gaslighting at the end. Well. Even with the crazy guest, like, what if yeah. it turned out that was a twist? But the thing is, it's supposed to be a happy ending. Mm-hmm. What if it was not a happy ending?
0: <laughs> yeah. And he's like, what the what hell are you doing to me?
1: Genuinely horrifying. And also, maybe get rid of some of those uh, low-hanging fruit <laughs> gags.
0: Yeah, those no-homo
1: the, gags. The Woody Harrelson scene, the Heather Graham scene, maybe. Ugh. Also unpleasant. But you
0: know what was a great thing to see? <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton show up for a yes. minute. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, his, uh, Jack's old friend, Harry Dean Stanton.
0: Uh, and I well, also... couldn't have been Harry Dean Stanton and Dick Miller. Like, come on, yeah. Jack, throw him a bone. Yeah.
1: Uh also in the movie Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. Ugh,
0: who has a lot of lines. <laughs> you can do it. Boo. Giuliani
1: does a Rob Schneider impression in this film.
0: Uh you're the man, Giuliani, as Sandler says. Uh, you,
1: you know, Chat Nicholson's career Petered out. Well, it came to a triumphant close with the one-two punch of the departed and then the bucket list.
0: Well, I gotta point out that I watch Something's Gotta Give. Loved it. Very fun. Even though the characters are repugnantly rich in the film. Like, the vacation home they have
1: is like three mansions put together. I mean, that is like every comedy from the 90s, which... I mean... It, ah, the Clinton years, my friend. Something's got to 2003, so it's like Hangover from a 90s comedy. Mm-hmm. It's like all, all those movies have people living in horrific homes.
0: But it's like the Hollywood ending of Carnal Knowledge, where this old Jack Nicholson, who's never felt love before and just dates women under 30, realizes that, oh, you know, maybe I can fall in love with a woman the age of Diane Keaton. And it's, ah, yep, yeah, that... It happens, well, which unfortunately did not happen in his own
1: life. Well, you know, who knows? Maybe he made something Scott to give and he said, you know, maybe I should give Angelica a call.
0: <laughs> maybe. And, and then she's like, not interested. <laughs> yeah.
1: And so he's just uh, destined to live out the rest of his life alone. Both of us saw that uh, article, that bit of clickbait that was passed around recently where he said, recently,
0: like, eight years ago but it's haunted us
1: since then (laughs) it's like he he was saying he's still hoping for that one last great love this man this man who has had everything this Mm. man of Falstaffian appetites hoping for that one last love
0: and he really hopes not to go out on the james l brooks film
1: how do you know well there was a period when it looked like he was going to go out on that tony erdman remake
0: but rumor has it he has difficulty learning lines and can you imagine having to control him now on a comedy he'd probably be like ah fuck
1: you you know the thought of old Jack Nicholson wearing a wig and running around in a Tony Erdman remake does not fill me with confidence really
0: I would love it I'd be there opening day ticket in oh, hand oh I'd
1: be there too I mean I'm not I'm not in the habit of missing Jack Nicholson movies
0: so uh, as per usual you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com and uh, this week, uh, it's a very special Patreon episode. Will, do you want to set it up a little bit?
1: Uh, we had Couples Night. Justin, I, and our partners got together and watched two <laughs> Christmas classics. We watched, speaking of Adam Sandler, we watched Eight Crazy Nights. Oh, boy. Wow. Uh,
0: which, the, the fury on that episode from both of us. Well, It's hey, something to be witnessed. Let's not spoil it. Yeah. Maybe
1: we liked it. And we also watched a classic Jim Carrey <laughs> film called Club Med. No, no, not Club Med. Uh, it's set at Club Med. It's called... Copper Mountain which is one of his very first movies and is basically an infomercial for Club Med Resorts and it co-stars Alan Thicke. So to find out what we thought about these two titans of comedy coming together. Oh, and uh, Copper Mountain's not actually a Christmas movie. Is, <laughs> no, it's it, not. There's it snow in it. Yeah, it does. So to find out what we thought of these classic Christmas movies with everyone's two favorite comedians. You, uh, Alan Thicke and Jim Carrey? Alan Thicke and Jim Carrey. <laughs> in
0: 1983. I didn't and, even know Jim Carrey made movies back then. Why? It was one of his very first.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, and uh, a little uh, spoiler, a little hint. Maybe not even much of a movie, but you'll have to listen to find out. All right, so uh, our first letter goes Dear Bustin and Will. Bustin?
1: Have... Is he talking about ejaculation? <laughs>
0: I have just spent the last few months happily binging the entirety of your back catalog, Patreon episodes included. Wow. Now, in the cavernous silence that is the state of being caught up, faint echoes of Justin's malapropisms and Will's (laughs) unique pronunciation of French cinema terms, oeuvre and cri de coeur, for example, can be heard bouncing off the walls of my mind cave.
1: I've said oeuvre a lot. (laughs) Man, I don't know. This guy
0: seems... uh, Eeks. He probably knows me better than I do. Presently, like the rest of the slobs and snobs of the important cinema club nation, don't call us that, I resign <laughs> myself to wait, arms crossed, staring into the middle distance, closed to the outside world, only to awaken when new morsels of content are ready for me to consume. Well,
1: here's what you do. You re-listen to the back catalog again. <laughs> yeah, it's like we go all over. It's like a time machine. And, and take notes this time.
0: <laughs> In all seriousness, thanks for the great podcast. While I am a very poorly motivated movie watcher and I've hardly touched any of those mentioned in your podcast. I am now so much more aware and informed of the depths of what is out there to be discovered. Without so much of my free time spent binging your podcast, watching some of those movies might be in the offing. Full disclosure, I'm Justin's younger brother. in the podcast... In ah! <laughs> the podcast has also been a great way to hang out without having to smell him or buy him lunch. I also get to make the occasional cameo in Justin's anecdotes. Although to be real, I don't remember sitting on the Sega console while you were playing it. I don't remember when I told the story, but it's one that's haunted me for decades. I'm
1: disappointed.
0: But this is shocking that my brother would write a letter to us and actually enjoy our podcast.
1: He's the smarter of the two brothers. Well, I hope this can foster a reconciliation.
0: (laughs) Well, we're not enemies or anything like that.
1: Ah, uh, you
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> now we get to the part of the letter where I list off all the names of auteurs that are already in your Google Doc for future episodes. Whether you get round to them, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on Terence Malick, Terry Gilliam, and Jean-Pierre Genet. While you may pretend to have semblance of pride, become the degenerate click hogs you know that you are deep down inside and do an episode on Wes Anderson. You know what's funny is that... We've never even discussed like doing a Wes Anderson episode.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. He's just so (laughs) covered. (laughs) What would we have to say about Wes
0: Anderson? Man, those flat uh, visual stylings. Maybe Uh, next time
1: he has a movie out, we'll throw pearls to swine and do Wes Anderson.
0: You've done episodes on directors, cinematographers, screenwriters, and critics. While straying away from the auteur-centric mission of the show, I'd be interested in you doing Patreon, episodes on stop-motion animation master Ray Harryhausen, special effects artist such as Rob Bottin or Rick Baker, or an important film composer such as Bernard Herrmann or Basil Doris. Oh, that'd be fun! Not I a bad even idea. Yeah, considered film composers. My brother is like he studied music at school, so that's definitely mm-hmm. one of his uh, strong suits. I was actually reading an article recently that made a good point, which is that like scores in films these days is one of the most important structural elements that people don't usually talk about. Like they'll say, "Oh, the score is good." without actually conceding that oh it is an incredibly essential part of how we experience what the filmmaker is
1: giving us oh certainly I mean you know if you if you Take out the score as you sometimes see on YouTube videos. It's yeah. a totally different Can you movie.
0: imagine Robocop without like the score or even like Starship Troopers? Like For, that yeah. like uh
1: march that goes through it. Or uh, Super Mario Brothers without that do 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 Alan Silvestri score.
0: Hey the call's still out there. If someone wants to re-edit Super Mario Brothers and give it the industrial score that it deserves, go out there and do it. Uh and the letter has one last thing, it says, Oh, and bring on more guests. Cheers, fill
1: up the clue. Okay, I'm out of friends. That's the
0: problem. (laughs) And uh, thank you very much, Phil, for sending in this letter. I just saw him a few days ago at the holiday gathering that we had, and he was even more complimentary, which is shocking coming from him. Wonderful.
1: Well, thank you, Philip.
0: And um, we will definitely get on. I've pitched, like, Rick Baker and special effects stuff a lot when we talked about doing, like, Shocktober episodes because I thought it would be an interesting way to approach it. Oh, did I turn you down? No, I think that I couldn't find, like the right angle on it because like we've talked about American Werewolf in London which is one of Rick Baker's most famous things Mm -hmm. but I think if we did Baker and Boteen at the same time Botine being a um protege of baker Mm -hmm. i think we'd have a lot to talk about like what does it mean to do practical makeup effects on stuff i mean rick baker uh worked with jack nicholson on the classic mike nichols picture wolf
1: what if we threw in jack pierce who did all the universal makeup oh yeah that's
0: that's i think that's great um and our next letter is from scotty gilmer and it goes hello hosts I loved your episode on Penelope Spheris in particular what you had to say about the Decline movies as a subculture nerd and a punk I've always been obsessed with them on a personal level but it's rare that I've heard a worthwhile conversation about them as cinema especially from square ass straight world normies like yourselves that's us thank you yep that's us (laughs) and while I've always noted the recurring theme of selling out in her work I never considered how much of a personal and professional concern this probably was for her so I really appreciated your comments on that as it contextualizes some of her movies I previously just thought of as scattered hack work. Well, thank you very much for those kind of words. And if someone's listening to this, because you're like, I know Jack Nicholson, but I don't know who this Penelope Spheris is, listen to those episodes. As we've said many times before, the episodes about women are the lowest Listen to episodes. Yeah, what does that say about you guys? And the letter continues. While I wasn't as offended by your dismissal of Wayne's world as I imagine some <laughs> listeners were. <laughs> I don't know if it was a dismissal. I tried to give it credit. I tried to give it, credit. To get yeah. it credit. It did make me wonder about how you feel about movies you once love but no longer care for. I still regularly quote and reference Wayne's World with friends and family, but I haven't watched it or even thought about it seriously in nearly a decade. I have little desire to rewatch it, as I'm sure I'd now have a similar reaction as you two did. I'd rather the Wayne's world I saw when I was 13 remain the only version that would exist for me now. I'm not talking about nostalgia, really. I'm not one of those people who won't admit that Hook or Space Jam suck. Well, they do. Yeah. <laughs> Though I... Oh, I mean, it's a Christmas season. Perfect time to watch Hook, which also takes place during Christmas. I didn't realize that. <laughs> Though I ride or die for Looney Tunes back in action. Count me in as one of your revolution. <laughs> I mean, Looney Tune back in action is great. It's a beautiful there's, there's, film. there's no contest there. While there are plenty of movies I enjoy aging with, Before Sunrise at 16 and Before Sunrise at 29, are two very different movies, but both great. There's some I'd rather just have as memories. What about you? Do you have any movies you had great affection for in the past that you'd rather keep in the past, or times you really regretted revisiting something? I'm looking forward to the first issue of the newsletter. Thanks to both of you for the show, and no thanks to Will for introducing me to the song Al Gore Lives on My Street. <laughs> this song is going to follow me to my grave. Hmm, that doesn't sound like important cinema club business. All yeah. the best, Scotty. Well,
1: I guess Michael Moore, but <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I won't bring him up.
0: <laughs> uh, so movies that we revisited and gone, huh, those aren't as good as I remember. Uh, a few words, Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, as a Kid, was a funnier movie ever made.
1: Probably not. I went to see it dressed as Ace Ventura.
0: (laughs) And uh, I rewatched it recently um, on a Valentine's Day. Me and Emily, we watched Happy Gilmore, Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. My Valentine's Day card for her was a rhino that when you pulled it out, it was a naked version of me that came out of it. Oh, my God. (laughs) So uh, it was disappointing to sit there and be like, wow, this movie doesn't hold up. What does hold up? Happy Gilmore. Still funny. Okay. How about you, Will?
1: You know, just yesterday we were talking about the James Bond movies, and I was thinking about how James Bond movies are very exciting for a kid because they seem like really grown up movies. Mm -hmm. They've got people in tuxedos, they drink alcohol, they have sex, they gamble, they work in government stuff, and the plots are kind of hard to follow, but they also have a lot of action scenes. They're also
0: long. They're They're like
1: well over two hours, most of them. Yeah, they are a child's idea of very sophisticated entertainment. And, you know, I got to say, I, I sort of left the James Bond movies behind when I discovered like Hong Kong action movies.
0: Yeah, good movies. Yeah, good movies. I mean, you know,
1: you watch a couple of like Troy Hart movies and Roger Moore, you know, pretending to ski in and a, puffing. in front of a uh, fucking rear projection, yeah, yeah. not too exciting anymore.
0: Uh, One of our friends was trying to argue that, like, you know, the Mission Impossible scenes, they all kind of blend together. I can understand that. And he's like, but the James Bond film, they stand apart. No. Which is hilarious because five minutes earlier, we were trying to argue what scene was in what James Bond movie, a series that features multiple just boring ski sequences (laughs) yeah Uh,
1: i mean i defy you to watch thunderball
0: uh and this is coming from someone who sat through an all-night james bond marathon brutality
1: i also recently revisited pulp fiction and i'm not quite sure what to do with my reaction to it because you know you can't step into the same river twice river's not the same you're not the same if i were watching pulp fiction for the first time right now uh would i enjoy it
0: I was always a little baffled at the critical praise of of Pulp Fiction, only because that when I came to it, I came from being immersed in like horror cinema and Hong Kong action and Japanese cinema, and then like the people who love that also love Quentin Tarantino. So like here is Pulp Fiction, and I remember sitting there and watching it and being like, "That's it, interesting." Yeah, and it's I had seen Reservoir Dogs and very much enjoyed it. But, like, Pulp Fiction, that was the holy grail. And I remember as a teenager sitting with the volume down, because we only had one TV and one DVD player, watching the movie and being like, oh, okay, I guess maybe I had to be there. And I grew to like it, you know, after that. But I can understand where your reaction is yeah. coming from. Well,
1: you know, when I saw it as a teenager, there was that that shock. The of, frisson. Yeah. And that is that is gone. Mm-hmm. I think the whole middle section of the movie, the Bruce Willis section, is embarrassing. <laughs> really? Uh, like, you know, two Manic Pixie dream girls and a kind of homophobic rape, mm-hmm. uh, very racially charged rape scene. Uh, I mean, you know, Quentin's got some race issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of his dialogue just sounds a little show-off-y to me now. Uh, like, I, I don't know, I see Quentin Tarantino, like, that movie seems so cool to me as a teenager mm. and now it just seems so lame. Yeah, you
0: think so? I see this it's lame It's just guy. another Tarantino imitation yeah. out in the, Actually, in the world. this
1: lame guy jacking it. And I don't know, because <laughs> when I see Boogie Nights, mm-hmm. it keeps getting better. Oh, Boogie Nights is so So good. I don't know, I don't yeah. know what's happening.
0: I oh. think that like, when you're a teenager and you know, I want to save this for our, I mean, we're going to do a Tarantino episode at some point. Yeah. Because it's so. Iconic in the way that it's presented. Mm-hmm. It's so cool that that's what sticks in your mind. It's
1: got great moments. Yeah. you know that scene of Samuel L. Jackson doing Ezekiel mm-hmm. twenty-five, whatever.
0: John Travolta looking for somewhere to put
1: his coat. John Travolta's <laughs> accent changes throughout the movie. Sometimes he talks in like a black yeah. voice, and then sometimes he he doesn't. Sometimes he talks in kind of a southern voice. It's like <laughs> what what the fuck is wrong with you?
0: He he just it revitalizes career. He well. says
1: his lines in the way that probably tarantino said them to him like right before the take
0: started and also
1: the fact that okay samuel jackson is like the coolest guy in the room he is so in control for the whole movie except the scene when he brings the dead body to tarantino's house and then tarantino's
0: the coolest guy in in
1: control and tarantino is bombarding him with the n-word and that's sick and you know if that role had been played by somebody like bruce willis maybe it would have (laughs) worked yeah but not tarantino (laughs) Ah, just raking them over the coals here. But look, do I need to cue you up? Because I know there's one guy who we're both thinking of.
0: Hey, that's my man. I wasn't even supposed to be here today. Kevin (laughs) Smith. (laughs) We've talked about this a lot. I think we've done multiple episodes on this topic about like... If you were our age, coming up and liking movies, you had to like Kevin Smith. Yeah. Because he represented... If you were a boy. Who, yeah, if you were... Sorry, let me be specific. If you were a boy. <laughs> even though, you know, I've heard certain um, ex-film comment uh, critics talk about their love for Kevin Smith as well. Oh. Uh, like, it was a connected universe. It felt like you were in on it. Yeah, yeah. And wow, has it not aged well
1: yeah, at all. Uh, I'm... F- Chasing Amy is the one that I'm sure... <laughs> it would be really bad to revisit. remember
0: watching mallrats and being like how could this have failed at the box office yeah. and now you're an adult and you're like well of course it didn't do that well
1: 37 in a row
0: <laughs> how uh, dare you
1: <laughs> classic
0: ooh but yeah so i think kevin smith is right up there the two um, golden gods kevin smith jim carrey <laughs> Ace Ventura. Probably not as... It wasn't as funny as I remember it being. Mm. Transphobic humor.
1: Uh, first half of Ace Ventura. Very funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do not
0: go in there. Pretty much
1: up to and including the scene where he wears the tutu, I think, is very funny.
0: <laughs> yeah. Man, that tutu scene when I was a kid, though. Probably the funniest thing oh, ever. so good. Uh, so, next
1: week. What are we doing, Will? Uh, next week is the Important Cinema Club Christmas Spectacular. Mm-hmm. And what will we do for Christmas this year? We decided to... Look into the work of a homegrown hero, Mr. Bob Clark.
0: Uh, well, technically not from Canada. He just became a
1: Canadian resident. He just made all his movies here, I <laughs> yeah, guess? Yeah, he did. You may be thinking, who's Bob Clark? Uh, oh, Murder by Decree? Come uh, on! Uh, Baby Geniuses? Cannons? Super Babies? Karate
0: Dog? Uh, Rhinestone? Uh, Porky's. Porky's too. the next day.
1: But he also did uh, two movies that have become beloved Christmas classics. A Christmas Story and Black Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Black Christmas. Mm-hmm.
0: um Yeah, he's a director that when people talk about him, they talk about those two films. One of them we <laughs> do not like, yeah. and the other one, eh, we'll get to it. I'm sure. Sure. Uh, and we'll maybe da- I'll like the the one this that time. you don't like. Yeah, maybe I'll like it this uh, time. I doubt it. Right. You have to tune in to TBS on December 25th to watch like the 30 oh, screenings
1: they do. God, up the thought of revisiting some of those scenes is just oh, it gives me a stomach. Are you gonna watch ache. Porky's again? <laughs> I've never seen Porky's. What? Yeah, I'll watch it.
0: And, uh, you know, I I made a list and I thought it was going to be like two or three movies, but I was shocked at how many. I was like, well, I've never seen Rhinestone, (laughs) the Sylvester Stallone. I've seen Rhinestone. (laughs) Or um, Turk 182, the cool graffiti
1: movie. Well, as a Chevy Chase completist. We're going to watch Karate Dog. Karate Dog, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) So I'm really looking forward to that, our Bob Clark episode. And until then, (laughs) I am Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So in the last week, uh, there was an article published in the Washington Post that I saw everybody start posting on Twitter. And it has the headline, Filmstruck Wasn't That Good For Movies, Don't Mourn Its Demise by Catherine Grew. That article. I think it's actually a very interesting article. Okay. Because essentially the argument she makes is that you know the canon is defined by certain people and it is what it is Uh, blah 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 like why don't we look at movies in different ways but that kind of dismissive attitude that you have it leads to the like death
1: threats that she received okay hey don't pin that on me (laughs) no it's
0: not I'm not pinning it on you but I'm just saying like that like
1: i'm i'm for expanding the canon not blowing it up
0: but i think that what people are really reacting to is the headline which as the writer pointed out she did not write right like most articles sure and um the fact that like the way that we view the canon of film has been defined very specifically in certain ways like whether it be like just white men who do things which is how it is Mm -hmm. or the fact that like Whole swatches of history had just been thrown down the tube. Now, I didn't subscribe to Filmstruck. We didn't in have in Canada. It. We didn't yeah. have it
1: in Canada, yeah.
0: But uh I know that they were very like good at like remastering stuff, re-releasing stuff, and that's good. But at the same time, they do usually have to fall within the confines of what people will watch. Right. Like and it came to how we decide like, who we pick to do episodes on, which is like people that most often the audience will know because
1: people won't click, they won't listen. And that's like an issue, right? Well, like, I think we try to balance it. You yeah, know? we do. I mean, look, Jack Nicholson, you folks have heard of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I know that we were both more excited by Bill Gunn.
0: Yes, we were much more <laughs> excited. And there is something to say about preservation. And this is a conversation that is being uh, discussed a lot in some circles that we are in an era of preservation right now where films will be lost like they were when they were silent. Mm-hmm. Because prints are not kept, they're not archived. Uh, digital archiving is something that no one seemingly is researching, and they're going, eh, we'll just put it on a hard drive, and you will see. Mm-hmm. So, like, shit will be gone. And there's the idea of, like, oh, it'll be on the internet, it'll exist forever. It doesn't. Some stuff just disappears. Mm -hmm. Like, YouTube videos that you probably watch, like, endlessly are just gone, and no one saved them, and so they will never be distributed. And that's scary. Yeah. And it's a conversation that not a lot of people are having. And, I mean, it may be really inflammatory in this Washington Post article where it, like, argues of, like, what do we define as a good movie? What should we archive? Et cetera, et cetera. But it is a conversation that people should be having, I think.
1: It does scare me a bit, by the way, that... Like, like we could at any moment have just like a a digital dark age, Mm -hmm. you know.
0: Like the power goes out and we're screwed. (laughs) Yeah,
1: or like anything can be erased from the internet. If you see a website from nineteen ninety six that's still up, it's such an incredible novelty. Mm -hmm. Um, And. You know, back in the day, you have all the newspapers archived on microfilm and they were at your library and it was there if you wanted it.
0: I remember Grady Hendrix saying that he wrote a bunch of articles for I don't remember exactly what website, but one day they were just gone. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's every it.
1: every writer's worst. And he nightmare. didn't like save
0: them because they're up there and like he moved on with his life and he just didn't have access to them. The same thing happened with a podcast I listened to where their host just one day closed the doors, locked up, you know, and they didn't save those podcasts. And it's like iTunes doesn't host them. Mm. They just link to your host. So if it gets deleted somewhere, they're gone forever. And they may exist on someone's hard drive somewhere. You know what? That fucking happened to a podcast I did. Mm. I did a podcast called Needs Commentary. We did 50 episodes, didn't save them on my computer. They were like on mega upload. Guess what happened to mega upload? The doors closed. Yeah. And we didn't have enough listeners to warrant like someone being like, oh, I've collected them all. And that's just podcasts like movies they're massive files and you either have it all or it's just gone like think of just fragments of films that are saved or reconstructed and you could do something with that digitally not nah, it's everything or nothing
1: i was very horrified uh, to find out that you know our, our friend peter was showing speed racer this summer mm-hmm. on an imax 70 millimeter print and he heard from warner brothers they didn't have any digital prints left. They no. just got rid of them. That's... Those are digital prints. Yeah. That's hard drive space.
0: Like you could just put it on a shelf somewhere and they just made the decision, eh, we don't need it. D- delete. Yeah. yeah, it's gone. And
1: the whole selling point of digital is that it's supposed to last forever.
0: Like I was watching a very fun uh, horror film that came out in the early 90s called Mom. And it was a pristine version of a movie nobody knows about, and it was playing on television. So they obviously found the negative, they scanned it, and it looks perfect. You know what? With digital films, that's not going to happen. If it's gone, it's gone. Like, if nobody cares and it's, like, some independent person making a few things, you know, Impossible Horror, there's some Blu-rays out there. What if, like, my whole apartment burns up and everything's gone? (laughs) so everyone preserve
1: your copy of impossible Yeah, and if you
0: don't have one buy impossible (laughs) this was the big like um if you care about film history you got to get impossible horror uh but at the end of the day it just comes down to either a a rich benefactor who's going to be like i mean something similar like that happened in quebec with the company elephant who started remastering and re-releasing quebec films but other than that like the government is supposed to do that, but the government's like, "Well, there's no money in this, so why would we put it on the books?"
1: That's why we got to put pressure on them. Yeah, that's the right. Park Cinema Club is starting its grassroots effort <laughs> to elect. Governments that will that will fund us, yeah, us, us yeah. Us. We're
0: running the uh the Film and Culture Center of Canada, so yeah. this is our announcement that we'll be running for <laughs> and that. We, and we want
1: carte blanche; we <laughs> want any tax money we ask for,
0: anything. Like I mean,
1: we can skim a little off the top. <laughs> yeah, for us.
0: yeah, yeah. But yeah, all our listeners, you're gonna keep that on the download. Right? Our,
1: our listeners like us; they would want us to be successful.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um. So. Uh, I all I'm doing here is just a um, ringing the doom bell saying, like, this is coming. <laughs> right. And just think that all the stuff that you have, like, I'm shocked at how many people tell me, I don't own a Blu-ray player. And I'm like, that's cr- I like, there's so many movies at your library you can get on mm-hmm. DVD that you cannot get on any streaming service. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, buy a Blu-ray player. And so you can watch Impossible Horror. <laughs> cool. Available at www.impossiblehorror.com.